Hi, this is Rob Shank. Welcome to this, the inaugural podcast for Shank Talks Bunhofer. And you're probably listening because you have an interest in the latter that is in Bunhofer over Shank, because Bunhofer is certainly a more recognizable name than Shank, but maybe we know each other from somewhere. And you're joining or you just fell on this podcast. Whatever the reason, I'm really glad you're here with me for this, the launch of what will be an ongoing conversation about this remarkable church leader of the mid-20th century, early to mid-20th century. And uh, today, it's going to be very simple because I'm introducing Dietrich Bonhoeffer, my posthumous friend mentor, spiritual director, and maybe we already have him in common. If not, and this is your first encounter, or maybe the first time you hear any details about this remarkable man's life, uh, then it gives me great pleasure to introduce him to you. I feel like I've really gotten to know him, especially over the last uh, seven years. And I'll explain that as we go on uh, in this podcast experience together. But for now, allow me please to introduce to you Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for whom the main sponsor of this podcast is named the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, dedicated to perpetuating his legacy, to applying his insights, particularly on the question of ethics, to the exigencies, the crises of our own time, as he did to his time. And we have an advantage there because we get to kind of reflect on what worked and what didn't work for him in the extraordinary epoch that he lived in. Of course, there are few comparisons. The world was melting at that time. Uh, a world war uh, had engulfed the earth in a conflagration. Millions were dying, including being systematically murdered. Uh, and nation was rising up against nation. Uh, and in the midst of that, Bonhoeffer applies these insights that he had uh, on the question of how to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ, the concepts of Christian morality and ethics, spirituality uh, to the extreme crises of his day. If he could do that then, we can certainly do it now and, and benefit from it. So that's the purpose of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and, by extension, this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the Institute, please visit us at TDBI stands for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, makes it simple to remember, tdbi.org. You'll also find us on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram and a lot of other uh, sites as we add them, so please do. By the way, I'm in my study enjoying my fourth floor perch in my house, which is very near Catholic University and the Basilica uh, of the National Shrine here in Washington, so you may hear bells ringing in the background. Please don't let them disturb you. I think Dietrich would have enjoyed those bells from the Basilica, and I hope you do too. All right, who was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Well, 
to give you a quick synopsis, he was a young, World War II era German pastor, theologian, and Christian ethicist who was one of the first church leaders to speak out against the dangers of Nazism and the rise of Adolf Hitler. He would eventually pay for that with his life when he was executed at the Flossenburg concentration camp by special order of Hitler in April 1945 when Dietrich was just 39 years old and engaged to be married. But before his death, he left us thousands of pages of some of the finest theology and Christian ethics of the last 150 years, at least in my opinion. He was the author of a number of classic books. Uh, there are many sermons that survive and have been uh, collected and published. So during his relatively short life, uh, he was prodigious. He was prolific in his uh, in what he left us in writing. He was a good writer. Uh, he enjoyed writing. And we're so, uh, those of us who know him in that way are so grateful for it because uh, we're able to carry him uh, with us in our times. Bonhoeffer lived, as you can imagine, in Germany. That was his uh, birth country and the uh, nation and culture of his upbringing, but he also lived for a short time in Spain, in the UK, even in the United States, and he tra uh, traveled to several other countries, including uh, Italy, where when he visited Rome, he was quite impressed with St. Peter's and the Catholic Church, even though he was, of course, a Protestant minister. He was a member and uh, a clergyman in the Evangelisch Kirche. Don't uh, anyone test my German pronunciation here. It's pretty poor. I am working with a tutor, so I'm going to get better as this podcast goes on. Uh, but we would translate that the Evangelical Church. Now, it's not quite what we think of as the Evangelical Church in the United States, uh, it would equate more to what we uh, know as the Lutheran churches. But his particular brand of Lutheranism, if you will, was closer to a kind of Calvinism, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, or a Presbyterianism, because the branch of the church that he related to was based in Pomerania at that time, and the Pomeranian church was very much informed by continental reformed theology and polity. So he was kind of a hybrid between a Lutheran and a Calvinist. But in any case, he was an ecumenist. Ecumenism or ecumenical comes from uh, Greek terms that mean the whole house or the whole church, meaning... Bonhoeffer had a concept of the universal church that transcended denominationalism, and he really worked hard, even on a formal level, to build relationships with all Christian churches. He was brilliant. He completed his first doctoral dissertation at age 21, Sanctorum Communio, the Communion of Saints, a sociological study of the church. He did his second dissertation, which was required for him to gain a credential as a lecturer in the university. Uh, it was entitled Act and Being, a Philosophical Treatise, when I believe, somebody check me out on this, but I think he was 23 when he completed that one. So this was one 
brilliant guy. I don't I wouldn't even want to take a guess at what his IQ number was. And let me just touch on some highlights of DB's life. You'll hear me call him DB, Dietrich, sometimes more formally Bunhofer, but I like DB, so that's my affectionate term for this uh, remarkable man. His father, Carl, was a famous psychiatrist in Germany. He was also a professor of neurology. Now, that doesn't equate to what we know as a neurologist in this country. It wasn't really the physiological, well, there was, I guess, a physiological component to that science, but it was more the expanded uh, science of psychiatry. He was kind of a combination psychiatrist, psychologist. If you go to Berlin today, you will see a big sign on a tall building, the Bunhofer Institute. It's not our institute. It's not named for Dietrich. It's named for his father, Dr. Carl uh, Bunhofer. And uh, the home that Carl Bunhofer, as the patriarch of the family, created was mostly a non-religious home for the Bunhofer children. And yet Dietrich was drawn to Christian spirituality and religion very young, which uh, which basically reflected the culture of his mother, Paula, who had a long line of church leaders in her family, theologians, chaplains, uh, clergy going way back. Uh, that was not his father's line. And yet, even with that religious history, while there was a respect and certainly a deference towards uh, Christian spirituality in the home, it really wasn't present there. And when Bonhoeffer, as a very young man, uh, as still a teenager, announced to his parents that he would study theology, it really scandalized them, especially the father, but the older brothers whom he respected very much and were very important to young Dietrich, uh, they poo-pooed this and said he would be wasting his life. And yet that made him even more resolute that he was not only going to study theology, if necessary, he would reform the church that his father and brothers felt had fallen into uh you know, into disrepair religiously, if you will, had become uh, a useless institution in German society. And he said, then I shall reform it as a teenager. This was one uh, precocious, uh, you know, boy. Uh, but as a child, he had reflected on deeply spiritual concepts, mostly in conversations with his twin sister, Sabine, uh, who, uh, always strange for me when I'm talking about a female to refer to as fraternal, but anyway, his fraternal twin, Sabine, and uh, they would talk about spiritual things. So he was deeply committed to spirituality at his core. And the only question as he grew older was, would he express this passionate Christianity that he had as a pastor in the church world, or would he do it as a theologian lecturing in the university? And he was conflicted between those two things. So he actually, after studying uh, theology, uh, he went away and served as a curate or an assistant pastor, if you will, to a, uh, a German-speaking congregation in Spain. And 
that's where he settled the matter. He would pursue ordination as a pastor and was ordained at St. Matthew's uh, in uh, back home in Germany. I've been to that church. And uh, after that, one of his first assignments as a newly ordained minister was to teach confirmation class to poor and working uh, working class kids in East Berlin. So here was a child of privilege. Bonhoeffer had grown up in a kind of aristocratic home where there were uh, cooks and drivers, uh, chauffeurs, if you will, and uh, other servants. Uh, there was a governess or nanny that took care of the children. Uh, they lived on you know, at the upper tier of upper middle class, uh, highly educated, um, not quite high society, but near high society Germans. And here he was falling in love with these very poor, marginalized families in East Berlin. And that would give him an appreciation for some of the teachings of Christ and the Beatitudes that would become part of the uh, fabric of his life and of his ministry. Then came 1933. By the way, did I mention he was born in 1906? So it's now 1933, and Hitler is appointed uh, Reich Chancellor in Germany, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is one of the first to speak out uh, and warn of the danger of the Fuhrer principle, the idea of a consummate leader. And of course, he juxtaposes that to uh, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the only uh, one that has a claim to our absolute and complete devotion. And he warns of the dangers of, of creating an essentially omnipotent leader uh, on a political level. And you know the story, probably. It's quite well known uh, that when he is addressing this on the radio, the cord is literally pulled and the uh, radio broadcast is shut down uh, before he has a chance to finish. Nobody knows exactly who was responsible for that, but it's hard not to draw an association after all these years uh, with somebody who didn't like what Bonhoeffer was doing in critiquing the concept behind uh, Adolf Hitler, which, of course, would give uh, way for uh, Hitler's claim to a totalitarian uh, dictatorship. But in the midst of that, Bonhoeffer begins to work with another well-known pastor in Berlin, Martin Niemöller, uh, and together they they founded the Pastors Emergency League. I had the privilege of standing in the kitchen of the manse or the parsonage of the church where Niemöller served and where the Emergency League was formed. Thousands of German pastors would join that movement, which would give way to what was later called the Confessing Church, a Reformation uh component within the German Lutheran Church that would call for absolute faithful devotion to Christ as only Lord, as only Führer, and to resist the encroachment of 
the Nazi regime on the church. You know, Hitler would eventually act to co-opt the church and to control it by appointing his own bishop. Uh, and the confessing church resisted that. Now, um, in the midst of all this, as the confessing church is gaining ground in Germany as a reformation movement and as a resistance to the politicization of the church by the Nazi party, Bonhoeffer would take leadership of the first confessing church seminary, training confessing church pastors at a place called Finkenwalde. I visited there as well, and I'll tell you all about that trip in a future podcast. Uh, and in that uh, assignment at the Finkenwalde Seminary, Bonhoeffer begins a lifetime friendship with Eberhard Beitka, who would become his biographer, was certainly his confidant, his prayer partner uh, in, in life. And it was during that time at Finkenwalde, he would write Cost of Discipleship, Life Together, these defining volumes of his concept of Christian ministry and prophetic witness for his time. He would develop over time a conversation with military officials who were quietly leading a resistance movement to Hitler. They saw Hitler and, and the Nazi party as a disaster for Germany. Uh, they would later resist and attempt to frustrate Hitler's um, diabolical uh, fascination with uh, war and uh, expansion of the German state. Uh, they saw that as planting the seeds for the destruction of Germany. And so here were internal military factions that were working against Hitler. Uh, Bonhoeffer's own family members were a part of that, and Bonhoeffer was invited inside where he actually became employed by the German military and would use that employment eventually to become a spy uh, for the Allies, reporting, using uh, church connections to report out to the Allies critical information about internal German uh, planning and so forth. It would also be in that position that Bonhoeffer would learn of the atrocities in the death camps long before uh, most others knew about them, most Germans knew about them. Of course, he was in danger of being detected in this work, and if so, he would have paid the ultimate penalty for it. So, uh, he would go to England, he would go to the United States to get away from that danger. But when he was in the U.S. Uh, doing a fellowship at Union Theological Seminary in New York, he felt responsible uh, for his people back home. He was, he was optimistic and would remain so all through his life to the very end about uh, the future of Germany. He thought Germany would lose the war, but that would give an opportunity to rebuild both German civilization and the church in Germany. And he felt he could never do that uh, responsibly if he didn't suffer with his people during the bad times. So he made a decision uh, to leave New York, return to Germany, 
and suffer with his people until the war was lost. And then by doing so, he would gain the right to help them rebuild after the war. That decision, of course, would ultimately lead to his uh, martyrdom. He would join the conspiracy eventually to actually assassinate the head of state, to assassinate Adolf Hitler. You can read about that in between the lines uh, of both uh, ethics, the book, uh, and his... uh, his famous Christmas letter uh, after 10 years that he sent out to his pastors, many of whom had been dragooned into the military and deliberately placed on the front lines of battle, which was a way for the Nazis to get rid of these uh, troublesome, meddlesome pastors, put them on the front lines as essentially cannon fodder to draw the fire and be killed. It was sort of uh, a passive uh, if you could say so, a kind of passive execution of them. And uh, that was happening. So uh, Bonhoeffer now uh, in prison, by the way. Uh, well, let me go back uh, to 1943 when he was engaged, big event in his life, to a much younger woman, by the way, uh, Maria von Wiedemeyer. And you can read uh, in his correspondence to uh, to her, which are preserved in a couple of volumes, uh, you can read of this amazing love story. He was 39, she was 17, so that's a discussion in itself, but of course it was a different time, a different place, different circumstances, and she was certainly mature beyond her years, uh, and maybe he was a little immature for his years notwithstanding this broad spectrum of experience he had had, he was still kind of boyish, but that's a discussion for another time, and and we will look at that side of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and maybe uh, Maria von Wiedemeyer. But of course, he would never marry her. Uh, In um, April of 1943, he was arrested. He was sent to Tegel Prison in Berlin. That's where we get letters and papers from prison, and that's where we really begin to see who he is and what he's made of. And while there in Tegel, he was hopeful he would eventually be exonerated and released, but it was while he was in Tegel that the Gestapo discovered internal military papers indicating that he was, that Dietrich, that is, was a spy, and uh much more seriously sets the stage eventually for uh, the discovery of his involvement with the plot to kill Hitler, and that would, of course, lead to his execution. He would be eventually taken to Buchenwald uh, concentration camp. That was actually an error. Uh, He was put on the wrong transport uh, vehicle. And when he was on in that uh, transport truck, uh, he sat next to a young boy, uh, Franz von Hammerstein. He was 17 years old. He was a catechism student of Pastor uh, Martin Niemöller and was just kind of swept up in a mass arrest. And I had the privilege of meeting Franz von Hammerstein when he was in his very late 80s. He has since passed away. But I met him uh, and talked with him. We had a little session, a group of us in Berlin, 
And uh, he told me he remembered quite clearly the conversation he had with Dietrich on that truck. And he said Bonhoeffer was optimistic uh, that the Allies would liberate the camps, that they would be freed. And he looked forward to helping rebuild the witness of the church, the gospel in Germany. So right up until the end, Bonhoeffer did not know that he would be uh, that he would suffer martyrdom. Uh, but it was right from that, uh, from Buchenwald, uh, they discovered the error that had put Bonhoeffer on the wrong transport, put him on the uh, uh, in another small vehicle that would eventually take him to Flossenburg concentration camp, where in April of 1945, uh, he this is just weeks before the liberation of the camps, he was uh, quickly tried and executed uh, by hanging within 12 hours. After the hanging, his body was cremated on an open pyre. They did have a crematorium. They had ovens at Flossenburg, but they were burning so many uh, bodies at that point that the oven broke down and they simply built what was essentially a large bonfire and uh, burned his body along with many others uh, on that pile of wood and then deliberately scattered his ashes in the forest so that they could never be recovered by family members. And that's exactly what played out. In fact, his family, uh, his fiance, his closest friends would not learn of his murder, of his execution until uh Months later, they didn't know what happened to him. Of course, they suspected the worst, but they had no evidence of it. And it was while listening on international radio to a memorial service in England where the Allies, uh, his intermediaries during his spy years, learned of his death before anyone who knew him in Germany learned of it. And they held a memorial service, and the parents, the family, the surviving family, he had family members also murdered uh, in the camps. Uh, but the survivors, along with uh, with uh, Maria von Wienemeyer, his fiance, learned of this only listening to the radio. And uh, after that, of course, the world gets to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So that's his life, his work. Uh, in, in a synopsis for you, if you'd like to learn more, we have some recommended reading at our website. You can go there, look up at the right uh, at the top and pick the recommended reading tab and look down. Uh, you'll see a list of biographies, short and long, all coming from kind of a different angle on him. There are some videos that are recommended there, uh, both uh, dramatic and documentary. And these are ways to really get to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But one of the best ways will be to listen to future episodes of this podcast, where I'll be inviting you to interact with me in the conversation. There'll be a number of ways that we do that. For now, I'm going to wrap it up. It was a pleasure introducing you to my posthumous friend, my spiritual mentor, uh, my hero at least one of my few earthly heroes, my dear Dietrich, I hope you have a kind of a, a good idea 
of at least uh, an outline of his life. We'll be filling in many, many more of the details as we go on in this conversation. Thanks so much for joining me on Shank Talks Bonhoeffer. See you again next time. Mm-hmm.